Well, good morning and happy Sabbath, church family. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. Uh, yeah, I was here a couple of weeks ago, been visiting with the uh, elders. Um, are you praying for a new pastor? Hallelujah. Uh, I suppose you'd like to know who it is. Well, we've been praying too, and uh, we don't know. The Lord hadn't told us yet. But we are praying that the Lord will send the right pastor here. It's not a job, it's a calling. And so I would encourage you to continue to pray as a church family as we are certainly moving through some uh, uncharted territory as we move forward in the future. But God is, God is here. And you know, when I was here, they showed me all around with the new renovations and the changes that are making, taking place. And I thought, you know, that's really, that's really, this is like, it's very nice. The last time I remember there was some renovations here, it was when we got married, my wife and I. I think it was back in 1978. So maybe it's a good thing to, to do a little sprucing up, I don't know. But it's been a joy uh, to be here with you this morning. I, I want to start um, by sharing with you why the title and why the content of this sermon. Uh, this sermon uh, was something that has come from my own personal study and experience. I've been studying the Bible with uh, a friend for a little over a year. And when I first met him, uh, he didn't want to pray. He didn't want to talk about anything. We talked about other things, and I just happened to meet him. And then after I had got acquainted with him a little bit, one time when I was leaving, I said, hey, would you mind if I prayed? He says, well, if you think it'll do any good, go ahead, but it'll be paying for yourself. And well, he didn't say no. So I thought, yeah, let's pray. And so I prayed. And I prayed that God would reveal himself to this new friend of mine. As our friendship deepened a little bit, I asked him if, if he'd be willing to study the Bible with me. And he says, I don't believe in the Bible. I said, well, have you ever read the Bible? Not very much. Well, then maybe it would be a good idea just to see what you don't believe. And he said, well, okay. But he did it because we were friends, not because he wanted to know what was inside. And so I started to study the Bible with him. Finished a study, started a second study. Each time, it was a little easier to pray. He would expect it, and I would pray. And then I asked him one day, I said, friend, called him by name, but friend, would you like Jesus to speak to you? And he said, what is that like? And I said, well, it's just like you and I talking as friends. Would you like to have him speak to you? And he said, yeah, I, I, I'd be okay with that. In the course of our study, I asked him if he'd like to invite Jesus into his heart as his friend. Yeah, I'll do that. A couple of weeks ago, 
I got the call that he was in the hospital. Wasn't doing well. His future was certainly uncertain and it could end in death. I had been out of the state and I came back in and when I came back in I went up to the hospital to see him. And I asked him how he was doing and he said, you know, it's really difficult. I can't walk. I don't have the strength to move my hand or to pull my body here or there. I, I don't know what's going to happen and this is no way to live. And I said, friend, do you know the truth is the best days of your life on this earth are behind you. You're not getting younger. But I have good news for you. The best days of your life are ahead of you. God has a future plan for you. Would you like to accept Jesus as your Savior? I says, I, I, don't, I, I, I don't think I, I'm not good enough. I'm a mean man. I complain, I whine, I'm not nice to people. I don't think I'm good enough. Whence comes the title of the sermon, Am I good enough? You know, the Bible says that there was a man who was a Pharisee. His name was Saul, and he was from Tarsus. And Saul actually thought he was good enough. The religious leaders of the day were teaching about what it means to be a fit citizen of heaven, and he followed to the letter everything they had to say. And so he fully expected that when he was ever to encounter God, that God would commend him on his life of excellence. And when God actually revealed himself to Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul didn't think he was good enough. He knew he wasn't good enough in the presence of God. You know, I, I don't know. In this congregation, in this church family, perhaps there's some here who have been so caught up with the business of life and all of the challenges that, that is thrown our way that perhaps we haven't really stopped to think about the future about what it means to prepare for Jesus' coming. Perhaps some of us have grown up in the church and we've heard all about the doctrines and teachings of this church as presented from the Bible, but somehow we've just never really thought it through. We've just never really quite understood what it means to prepare for heaven. Or perhaps... Some of you are um, in the twilight of life. And your journey in this life is just about to come to an end, and you've been wondering about the future. Perhaps. 
But no matter who you are, no matter where you came from, no matter what your background is, no matter what your culture is, no matter what your language is, no matter what your size or shape you are, at some point in our life, we are going to come in contact with the question, am I good enough? Jesus said in Revelation 22, he says, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give everyone according to the work he has done. Am I good enough? Have I done enough to warrant eternal life? Well, there's three questions I want to ask you this morning. Three questions, and my hope and prayer is that when we're done, you'll be able to answer those questions based on God's Word. First question goes like this. Who sets the standard for good and determines if I reach it? And number two, what is the standard for good? And number three, can I measure my progress? I, uh, I will say this. I know that God has told us that the Holy Spirit is our teacher. And I am so glad because the Holy Spirit can preach a sermon tailor-made to our lives. No matter where you are, no matter where your, your status is. And so I want to pause right now and I just want to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. And it doesn't matter if you're young. He knows just exactly how to communicate to you. Or if you're older and more seasoned, He knows exactly how to communicate with you. But let's just pray right now. Father in heaven, You know our situation. You know each person that's here. You know our hearts. You know everything there is to know about us, including our future, which we don't know. Father, we... We are in a need of your help. We're asking that you would open up our ears to hear your voice. Open up, Lord, you can't open our hearts, but we can open our hearts. And, and those of us who want to open your heart just now, just ask God, speak to me through the power of your Holy Spirit in that quiet, still, small voice in my own heart so that I may be prepared to answer that question, am I good enough? Because when you come, dear God, with all of your angels, the Holy Spirit and Jesus and the Father all coming, all of you, and we look up, we want to be able to hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So Lord, to this end, we're praying in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to our text. I'm going to spend a little time in this text because in this text, it touches on all three of these questions. So, 1 John 2, verse 28, and it goes like this. And now, little children, now John is talking, and John's not talking about the age of his audience. This is an endearing title that he's calling them. 
And he's talking to probably ones he's led to Christ. And this is what he says. And now, little children, abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Do you notice how many times John refers to a person by him, his, he? In this text, John refers four times to a person, and we know who that person is. He's referring to Jesus. This is all about Jesus, abiding in him, so that when Jesus appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Jesus at his coming. Now, it's interesting that the plan of salvation is a plan that involves the entire Godhead. And sometimes we think of Jesus as being our Savior, and He is. Is the Father our Savior? Yes, He is. Is the Holy Spirit our Savior? Yes, He is. Well, how does this work? The salvation has been uh, made, the plan has been made by all three of those members of the Godhead. But it's interesting that all three have different roles in playing out this plan of salvation. The Father's role is the, to maintain the unveiled glory between divinity and sin. The Bible says that sin cannot, cannot exist in the presence of God. It'll consume it. It's a consuming fire. And God is that, 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 that uh, the Father is that, that representative of that unveiled glory of God. Then we have Jesus. Jesus is our Redeemer. He does so much more, but His role was to come to this earth and bridge the gap between a sinner and, and, and a Savior. And then we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's role was to connect the repentant sinner through Christ all the way back up to the Father, which is where our our goal is, is to be able to be in the unveiled glory of God. Jesus was that bridge, that gap between us and, and the Father. The cross, as a result, has become a symbol of God's demonstration of His great love. The cross will be forever a symbol of that great love. What did Jesus say? No greater love is this than a man lay down his life for his friends. Well, the question comes, is it even possible for a sinner to become good enough? Is that possible for a sinner to become good enough? Well, in Jeremiah 13.23, God says, can an Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Can a leopard change the spots? Then how can you, who is used, not used to doing, how can, how can you do good who are used to doing evil? God is saying it's an impossibility for you, in your own strength, the way you are, to suddenly decide to change whatever it is and become like God. That's an impossibility. 
But then God quickly steps up and says, what's impossible with man is possible with God. So how do we become good enough? Do I try harder? Do I learn more? Do I drink energy drinks so that I have more, more get up and go? How do I become good enough? You know, the thought comes, well, couldn't God just come down and tweak me a little bit? Couldn't he just adjust me a little bit? Couldn't he just pull out this little thing called sin and then, you know, dust me off and fix me up, remodel that little spot, and then off I go? John the Baptist, when he came, was the forerunner of Christ. And he was preparing people so they could answer that question. What was John the Baptist's message? Repent and be baptized. And there's many times we say, well, I was baptized. Well, you know, let's invite everybody to be baptized. And then that's going to make it just where it needs to be, right? Well, baptism is only a symbol. The actual water that you are submersed in doesn't do anything for you except get wet. It's what happens. It's the symbol of what is happening on the inside. Baptism is a symbol of death. You go under the water, the water covers you, you can't breathe underwater. So it's a symbol that you are buried, like you had died. What is it that it is symboling? Why, does the water, why is God using baptism as a symbol of death? What is it that dies? What is it that must die? What is it that will die in every single person who goes to heaven? What is it? It's what? Our old man of sin, our sinful nature, must die. It can't be fixed or tweaked and taken to heaven. It must die. You must be a new creature in Christ. You must have a new character. You can't just dust off your old one. God's got to do a work in you that you cannot do. It takes divine power to change a sinful character into a Christ-like character. So, how does that work? And besides that, how long does it take? From the time I accept Christ, I, I go into the baptismal tank, and I come up, I'm a new creature, the Bible says. All things are, are become new. So am I suddenly now just where I needed to be? How long does it take? Couldn't it take, does it take an instant? Well, you know, God could do that in an instant. He spoke and it was. Is that right? But there's a problem, a big problem. The problem is not on God's side. The problem is on our side. You see, the problem is God gave us the freedom of choice. And God will not force us to do something that we don't want to do. And so we are the limiting factor of how quickly God can move in our hearts. And so if I am totally open and I, I just, everything God wants to do, I want to do, I will move much quicker in my, in my journey to become like Christ. 
But sometimes it's not so easy, isn't it? Because we want the things of this world, they're attracting to us, and if they weren't attracted, uh, attracting to us, we wouldn't do them at all. But those things that, that are attracting to us, we move towards them. And so God has to work in us and through us, but He can only do that with our cooperation. And as we cooperate with Him, as we abide in Him, He can make those changes. So John comes back and he says, and now little children, abide in Him. So the question is, how do we abide in Christ? And, and not only how, but where do I abide in Christ? We know that churches are, are believed to be that, that's the house of God. Is that right? This is God's house. And so oftentimes we think, well, if I'm going to meet God, I need to go to his house. But that's not abiding in Christ. That's not what God has in mind. It's not that you would just come to a certain location and abide with Christ. There's something else. There's another place in which God wants you and him to abide a place where you abide. And once you've established the place, then you establish what happens at that place and how you abide in Christ. There's a text in Psalms that many of you are familiar with and probably many of you have, have memorized it. It's Psalms 91, verse 1. It goes like this, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Did you know in this verse, there is an a answer to the question of how to abide in Christ and where to abide in Christ? Well, look what it says. It says, he who dwells, and when you dwell someplace, does that mean you just go there once in a while and one, maybe once or twice a year? Dwelling is where you live. And I live continually there. I mean, that's, that's, that's my place. So I could reread this and I say, he who continually lives in the secret place of the Most High. Now here I've got to stop and I'm going to say, where is the secret place of the Most High? If it's secret, then it must not be advertised too clearly. Where is that secret place? Because I need to find it and I need to dwell there. So where is this secret place of the Most High? You know, Ellen White gives us, in Spirit of Prophecy, she gives us a little bit of an insight as to where this might be. Because she links this verse in Mount of Blessings, Thoughts of the Mount of Blessings, page 131. She links this verse with the place where the closest intimacy and communion with God takes place. So where is it in your life where it is the closest, most intimate place where you and God meet? It's not in church. It could be in church, but it's not the destination of church. Where is that place? Where is the one place where only you and God can meet? No one else can meet there. Your wife can't meet there, or your husband can't meet there, your children can't meet there. Satan can't even meet you there. But what he does know is that when you meet there with God, 
there's an intimacy that takes place and he can't do anything about it, so he wants to ruin that place. He tries to make it so no one can go there. Do you know where this place is? It's in our mind. There's a sacred spot in your mind where only you and God can be. Satan can't get in there. Satan can't read your mind. He can't read your thoughts. He can read your expressions, and he can get a good idea of what you're thinking, but he can't read your mind. Your, your spouse can't read your mind. They may know you really well, but they still don't know what you're thinking. That place is only where you and God can be, and that's a sacred place where God wants to be. So now let me reread, continue reading. He who continues to live in an intimate relationship with God in the mind, dwelling on Him, shall, and it says abide, which means again continually be, shall continually be under the shadow of the Almighty. What is the shadow of the Almighty? It sounds like a favorable place, and it's someplace I'd like to be, but what is this shadow of the Almighty? The shadow of the Almighty is nothing more than the protection and guidance of God as played out in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. So when I reread this, it says that when I dwell continually in communion with God in my mind, and I, I am constantly in the presence of God, and I will receive the protection and guidance that He gives me at every single moment. I'll never be caught off guard. And when I understand that God and me have an intimate place right here, I am never alone. That's why God can say, I will never leave you or forsake you. You have to forsake me. And if you forsake me, you expel me out of that secret place of your heart. And if you do, then you're on your own. But if you don't and you embrace me, no matter where you go, no matter what you encounter, I will be there. And if you have the Holy Spirit who brings Jesus into the life and teaches you all the things you need to know, and gives you the power to do all the things you need to do, is there anything that you cannot do? And that's why Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He supplies all my needs. But if that's going to happen, I have to dwell, I have to abide with Him. So where I abide with God is important. It's in my mind. What's on my mind? The devil wants to, he wants to do everything he can to get your mind so busy, so occupied, that you have no time to communicate with God. Sometimes we are so busy with our schedule, we rush in and we say, Lord, please speak to me today. And you're off before he can say anything. God says, if you'll come, draw nigh to God and he'll draw nigh to you. That's what the Bible says. Submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee. The Bible says, that's the promise. So God is saying, if you will just 
give me time. Wait for that audience with divine authority and God will not disappoint you. He'll draw you close to Him. Now what is it that enables me to abide with God? What is it that draws me to Him? What is it that makes it so that I want to abide in God's presence? It's certainly not a fear of hell or a fear of disfavor. That only can last so long. There has to be a motivating force, a motivating power within me that draws me to Christ. I've been married to Gail for, well, since 1978, so if I quickly did the math, I'd figure that out, Dan. I'm usually one year behind, but I think it's 44 years. Now, why am I married to her for 44 years? Well, there's a lot of reasons that you might guess, but the one reason is because I love her. And I hope it goes on forever and eternity. What draws me to her is my love for her. And as I, as I spend time with her, as I abide with her, as I continue to grow together, I want to spend more time with her. But it's that love for her. I can't even imagine if I was in a relationship where I, hadn't, I, had a, I just hated that person. I just couldn't stand to be with that person. And every time I thought about having to go home, I'm thinking, no, give me something else to do. I can't even imagine what that would be like. And yet, how many of us as Christians look at this and say, I have to do this. Oh, I've got to do that. Oh, I'll give him money. Oh, I'll give him time. But I want my own time. How many of us do that? And the reason, the only reason for that is because we lack that drawing power, the motivating power that puts us with God in an intimate relationship. It's called love. What is it that enables us? Love. Love is the sustaining, motivating power that wants us to abide with God. John 15, 9 says, As the Father loved me, I also loved you. Abide in my love. All of us like to be where we're loved, don't we? where we're wanted and appreciated. Love is not just an emotion. Love is a principle that guides our life. In fact, in Thoughts of the Mount of Blessings on page 38, it says, love is the principle of action. And then it goes on to describe four things that love does. Love modifies the character. It governs the impulses. It subdues enmity. It ennobles the affections. That's what love does for us. Love is that transforming power. And I wanted to read this quote from Thoughts to the Mount of Blessings, page 114. Sometimes we come to God and we say, Lord, I want to be drawn to you. So, and if, if I confess my sins, you're faithful and just to forgive and cleanse me of all my righteousness. As well. I'm going to confess my sins. In fact... Father, just forgive all my sins, whatever they are. Have you ever prayed those kind of prayers? Well, that's not the way to pray, because that's not what God is trying to do. And this is what it says here. It says, God's forgiveness is not merely a judicial act by which he sets us free from condemnation. 
Oh, no. You see, forgiveness is accompanied with something else. And if you don't have that something else, you can't be forgiven. And it goes like this. It is not only forgiveness for sin, but the reclaiming from sin. It is the outflow of redeeming love that transforms the heart. As I come to Christ and I ask for forgiveness, it's not just a technical thing to get that off the books of record in heaven. We're saying we want it off of our person. We want it out of our DNA. We want it out of ourselves. We don't want to be like that ever again. And that takes the power of God to do. And yet God is willing to do that. Once I recognize who God is and who I am as a sinner, and I once I accept and receive the redeeming power of God and the joy of salvation floods my heart, there is a love in me by, placed by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in Romans 5.5, 5, it's the Holy Spirit who pours the love of God in me. Now that love draws me to my Savior, and I want to spend more time. I want to abide with Him. And as I abide with Him, every single situation I'm in, if I yield to God, I will be successful in resisting whatever temptation it is, or whatever the desire is, I'll be successful. In fact, I will be as perfect as Jesus was perfect, because He's helping me make all the decisions. I'm yielding to Him, and as I do, He transforms my whole being through the power of love. So, when that happens, do I have confidence? Absolutely, I have confidence. I have confidence knowing that I'm in the center of God's will. I'm right there where God can be with me. He gives me immediate feedback. In 1 John 4.13, it says, By this we know that we abide in Him, and He is in us because He has given us this Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a down payment. It's a, it's a surety that we have been accepted by the Father. 1 John 3.19-21, it says, Here's how you can know and have confidence. It says, If your heart condemns you, if your conscience condemns you of something you've done wrong, then you need to get that fixed and you need to confess it. But if your conscience doesn't condemn you, then you can ask whatever you want and God will give it to you because you want to keep His commandments and bring honor and glory to Him. In heaven, the fitness for workers is measured by their abilities to love as Christ loved and to work as He worked. Now let's see if we haven't touched on answering those three questions. Let's see if we can answer them. First one, who sets the standard for good and determines if I reach it? Jesus was our example in all things. He was our example. He was our substitute. He was our Savior. He's our mediator, and he's our judge. 
Jesus. Can you imagine having a judge who died for you so that you could live? You don't have to worry about the judgment. The judgment you look forward to. It's those who haven't had that relationship with God that fear the judgment. What is the standard that God uses to determine? In James 2.12, it says it's the law of liberty. The law of liberty is another word for the moral law. And Jesus took the moral law and he reduced it down to one word. You know what that moral law is? Love. The first four commandments is, demonstrates our love for God. The last six demonstrates our love for our fellow men. But it's still love. Who would want to break that law? Well, if you had love in your heart, you wouldn't. In fact, James goes on to say that if you really fulfill the royal law, according to scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you're going to fulfill the law, you're going to, it's going to be a demonstration by loving others. Okay, number, the last one, third one. Can we measure our progress? When I look in the mirror, do I see a difference? We may not see a difference, but we know there's a difference. Why? By what you are interested in. What draws your attention? The things of this world, you know you're going the wrong way. The things of heaven, well, you're going the right way. If you have a genuine love for people and you want to see them in the kingdom and you want to share the gospel with them and you're not thinking about you and yours, you're thinking about what you can do for others, that is a living demonstration that God is working in your heart. And if my conscience, which the Holy Spirit speaks through, that's really all the voice, the voice is, it's the voice of the Holy Spirit, and if that voice of the Holy Spirit is not bringing me to a point of confessing some sin that I know I'm doing something right. Because it's the Holy Spirit that brings us under conviction for sin in our lives. So the real question for us today is not, am I good enough? The real question is, have I embraced Jesus as my Savior and am I abiding in Him? Because if the answer to that is yes, then even so come Lord Jesus. If the answer to that is yes, then the things of this world are growing strangely dim. If the answer to that is yes, then I'm not trying to hang on to something. Now I want to give something. Because this world's not my home. Heaven is my home. So now in the quietness of your own heart, Jesus is asking you. He already knows. He already knows if there's something between you and Him. He already knows your weakest area. That besetting sin. He knows that. He already knows the struggles that you have in trying to overcome whatever it is. 
But he looks at you this morning. And he says, will you allow me to come closer? Will you allow me to come into that decision-making portion of your mind? Not just this moment, but always stay right there so that God can protect us and guide us. Will you abide with Him? And God's promise is that you'll dwell in the shadow of the Almighty. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you know us. All too many times we've said, yes, Lord, come in. And then we neglect you. We forget you. Or we get preoccupied. Or somehow, some way, we, we just get distracted. But Lord, I want to thank you for times just like today where you're speaking to our hearts, where you're drawing us back, putting us back on course, Father, we want to say we're sorry. We want to be changed as only you can do. We want the forgiveness that you offer with it, not just forgiveness in terms of taking it out of the record book, but forgiveness in terms of taking it out of our lives. So Father, just now, I want to pause and let whoever wants to right now just say, Lord, please come into my heart. Take my life. Train me to use my will in a way that will glorify you. Lord, thank you for this invitation that you've given to us, for the promise that you've given to us, for the sustaining power, and for never leaving us nor forsaking us. And Lord, we want to honor and glorify Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Substitute, our Mediator, and our Judge. And in so doing, we want to honor you, dear Father and you, dear Holy Spirit, so that we will bring honor and glory to you. Thank you for keeping us by your power. In Jesus' name, amen.